Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found, and I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 614. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. It is a cold evening. Yes, evening time as well. Well, it's actually 3 o'clock, but <laughs> it looks like only 8 o'clock at night. <gasps> Wet, miserable, but I have the, the wood-burning fire on there. The dogs around the fire there. We're all cosy, hungered down for a great story. And Mr. JJ Campanella struts onto the stage at the end of the month with his science news. There you go. That's coming in today's show. So I'll tell you actually what's coming in today's show. It is the main fiction is Glass Eyes, Steel Hands, Metal Mind by Deborah L. Davitt. This is an original to Starship Sova, yeah. And it's bloody hell, man. It's when narrated by David D. Levine. Just over, only a Hugo winning right out of science fiction. Fantastic. So that, coupled with Mr. J.J. Campanella. Ah, there you go. What a show to end off. This month, a wet, cold month, mind you, but anyway, so stick around and enjoy it. So, like I mentioned there, we'll come straight into this. Oh, man, it's fantastic, to be honest. Glass eyes, steel hands, and metal mind. Deborah L. David was raised in Nevada, but currently lives in Houston, Texas, with her husband and son. Her poetry has received Risling, Dwarf Star, and Pushcart nominations. Her short, short fiction has appeared in Intergalactic Medicine Show, Compelling Science Fiction, and Pseudopod. For more about her work, including her Edda Earth novels and her forthcoming poetry collection, The Gates of Never, there's a little link there to EddaEarth.com. Now, like I mentioned, this story is narrated by Mr. David D. Levine. Wow, how how cool is that? David D. Levine is the author of the Andre Norton award-winning novel Arabella of Mars, which tore 2016, and the sequels Arabella of the Battle of Venus, which is 2017, and Arabella the Traitor of Mars, tore 2018, and more than 50 science fiction and fantasy short stories. His story, that's all you're getting from me, won the Hugo Award and played on this show as well, and has been shortlisted for awards including the Hugo, Nebula, Campbell and Sturgeon. His stories have appeared in Asimov's Analogue Fantasy and Science Fiction Tour.com and numerous year's best anthologies, and is a Award-winning collection, Space Magic. And not forgetting, a fantastic narrator as well. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Glass Eyes, Steel Hands, Metal Mind by Deborah L. Davitt 
Read by David D. Levine. A group of pensioned soldiers bundled out of a pub in Southwark, hands deep in their pockets against the chill, passing a group of protesters and ignoring their jeers. Down with foreign coal! Down with the job-stealing cromies! Across the street, under a street lamp that cast a cone of pale light through the drifting gray fog, a group of suffragettes shouted, Votes for women! Among the pensioners, an Indian man with a wispy goatee held the elbow of a gentleman in a tweed suit with a white cane. The Indian man's arms terminated in three-pronged metal claws. The man with the cane? Under the brim of his fedora, he seemed to wear some manner of glass goggles. On closer examination, however, the lenses actually sat behind the eyelids, with no eyes visible behind them. For Captain William Haddocks, the fog didn't exist, any more than day or night. His glass eyes relayed a map of his surroundings into his brain by bouncing sound off of his surroundings. He needed to remove his eyes daily for charging, and they heated up fiercely, leaving him with headaches. His oculars rendered buildings and automobiles as stark black ink lines against a white background. Humans and their clothing appeared more like pencil sketches. Physiognomy, hair color, and skin tone were lost on him, and had been for six months. He recognized people now by height, bearing, voices. If he concentrated, he could see behind himself. Though doing so gave him migraines, so he tried to ignore his extended peripheral vision. Cutter did his best. I shouldn't complain, and it beats the alternative. Now he winced at the shouts of the protesters, muttering, How far to the car, Jelani? Pass them, Captain. The metal hand on his arm tightened. Naturally. He paused. It's not like Patterson to miss a meeting of the old guard. I'm sure the lieutenant's fine, Captain, the Indian man replied, guiding him towards a 1920 Peugeot Landelay. At that moment, several protesters moved to accost them. "'Isn't it bad enough that the nickel-pites are stealing our jobs?' one of the men shouted, spittle spraying Haddocks's face. "'You want to turn into them now, too?' Haddocks raised his white cane, not in supplication, but in self-defense. He could smell liquor. "'They've been keeping off the chill, lads.' "'What's it to you, Toff?' Several other soldiers with whom they'd spent the evening overheard and took a position between the two men and the protesters. "'We've got this, Captain,' one of them called. "'Go on home.' Another of the soldiers turned to brace the protesters. "'These two were wounded in the war. Were you there? You think you've got a right to talk to them like that?' Behind their brethren, Jelani fumbled with the keys, then helped Haddocks into the car, before taking the driver's seat to work the throttle and choke. The engine spluttered to life, and they rumbled away from the incipient ugliness. "'It's getting worse,' Jelani noted bitterly. "'A month ago they wouldn't have dared.' "'There have been more job losses,' Haddocks stared into the white void that was his world." Jelani, he called abruptly, take us by Patterson's flat if you would. I'd like to check on him. You think he was attacked, sir? He's been investigating. Maybe our Yankee friend found more than he expected. The attacks had started nine months ago. Always wounded veterans of the Great War. Men who should have been in the prime of their lives, waking up in dark alleys with body parts removed. Hands, eyes, kidneys, heart. Twenty men so far. Enough that the police had taken note but they'd disapproved of Patterson's investigation, particularly the people whom he'd been questioning. He'd been sacked for it. Or some out-of-work tramps accosted him? Gilani offered grimly. Possibly. Best to check on him. Haddocks had met Indranil Pandit Gilani during the Second Battle of Ypres. 
Haddocks had been overcome by the first use of gas by the Germans, and the sepoy had carried the officer out on his back before collapsing himself. On regaining consciousness, Haddocks had insisted that the man who saved him should recover in the same ward and be damned to artificial social distinctions. They both still coughed in cold, damp weather. In the casualty ward, he had listened to Galani speak of Kuradad Khan Minas, the first Indian man awarded the Victoria Cross, a member of Galani's own 129th Baluchis. Three years later, they'd found themselves sharing another ward, this time with an American lieutenant from California, Sam Patterson. He'd found work for both of them after the war, for Galani a position as a secretary in the Foreign Office. A letter of recommendation had set Patterson up with the London police. Then the attacks had started, and everything had changed. At least Cutter returned part of our lives to us, just not quite as good as new. That medic and others like him are a blessing. Be damned to what the protesters think of them. Sam Patterson kept his back to the wall beside the underground station exit, covering his mouth to suppress a cough. The gas of the war had left scars inside that would never entirely heal. He ached for the warmth of California's Central Valley, where surely it would be easier to breathe than in London's coal-tinged streets. But here he was. He could hear swing music spilling into the night from a nearby club, but the shadowy figures under the closest street lamp weren't here for pleasure. Men with flat-brimmed workers' caps, carrying placards, Down with the chrome jobs! Scrap the nickel pites! Patterson shook his head. Collier's probably. German coal's pouring in his reparations. They're out of work and can't find employment, what with the automatons, so they blame the chromies. One of those self-same metal-skinned humanoids lumbered past him now. His eyes tracked its progress toward the picketers. On impulse, Patterson caught the automaton's arm. It paused, its head rotating so that it could regard him impassively. Don't go that way, he warned. That bunch has probably been drinking since sundown. They don't need a reason. All they need is a target. Clicking sounds within its chest. Thank you, citizen, it replied. We'll comply. A repurposed combat model, it had a limited number of recordings from which to reply. But, to his relief, he saw it turn ninety degrees heading down an alley, away from the stewing crowd. Unexpected sympathy for chrome jobs from you, a voice called. Patterson's head swung as a 1924 Renault pulled up beside him. Inside, another repurposed combat automaton sat impassively at the wheel. In the rear, yet another automaton, though this one wore a fedora and coat, even gloves. To a passers-by, it might have looked human. Patterson's eyes narrowed. Looks like a cutty unit. Could be a newer model based on the same chassis, though. Every unit of a model class had the same appearance and voice. He'd never seen one try to distinguish itself through clothes before, though. Step in my office, Mr. Patterson, or do you prefer a lieutenant? The automaton invited in fluid tones, opening the door for him. Odd. Emulating humans? I don't stand on titles, Patterson replied, adding warily. Thought it was meeting with Mr. Brownell. He uncoiled from the wall, procurer of goods for those rich in cash and deficient in ethics. A laugh with all the authenticity of a Victrola recording. Mr. Brownell is an associate of mine, the automaton acknowledged. A necessary evil, given that my kind can't own property. Something that isn't real can't own real estate. Let's talk, Mr. Patterson. Patterson ducked into the car, touching his revolver where it nestled in his coat pocket. The Brits had picked up some damn fool notion about licensing such weapons of late, but with the Irish in rebellion he couldn't blame them. A lot of good this'll do me unless I hit it square in the brain case. Uh, I've been trying to get a hold of Brownell for some time. 
but this is the first I've heard of you. The man's dropped out of sight. Smugglers do that, but he's been a name in the wind for weeks. A gloved hand waved airily. So I hear. The engine purred to life, and they moved off into the fog. Whatever you have to discuss with him, you can discuss with me. Patterson nodded, biting down in his first reply. A niggle of suspicion rose in his mind. Could this automaton be why Brownell's gone missing? They're supposed to be safe for their owners, but if this really is a cutter unit, then means start to make horrible sense, if not motive. He cleared his throat. In the past six months, sir, a number of veterans have been attacked. The sir cost him nothing but politeness. A terrible thing, neutral tone. They've been left bleeding in alleys, with body parts removed. Patterson paused. Several have been friends of mine. At least three were found not far from Brownell's places of business. The metal head swiveled toward him. Have they identified their assailants? No, sir. Patterson stared at the automaton. I'm not accusing you or your, uh, associate. It seems to me that a man of his acumen wouldn't want that just outside his door. Bad for business. A pause, and then Patterson gambled. You're a cutter. A chill silence spread through the vehicle. I have that distinction. Patterson nodded slowly. As a medical unit, you'd be able to remove limbs and organs. He could hear whirring in its chest. I have that capacity, but to what end would someone do such a thing, Mr. Patterson? I am not prone to human mental illnesses. I'm an unlikely candidate for a would-be ripper. Was that humor? How like our own cutter, and yet how unlike with that overtone of superiority? Patterson frowned. Rippers target young women, not veterans in the prime of life. Veterans? Or disabled men who draw pensions? It wasn't quite a question. Men who represent drain on society, like the unemployed protesters in the street? Patterson closed his eyes briefly, seeing again arms and legs in a jumble at the bottom of a muddy trench. The spring offensive of eighteen hadn't been a pleasure stroll. I resent your implication. I was wounded in the war myself. I hardly think any veteran is a drain on society. And you feel that you shouldn't be scrapped or repurposed, as it were. Patterson held up a hand. You haven't been scrapped. His eyes narrowed as they passed a well-lit billboard with figures of soldiers facing automatons standing at attention. It read, Never again will our sons sleep in Flanders' fields. Invest in your country's defense. Buy your draft replacement infantry model today. You're our replacements, or were meant to be. It had sounded like a brilliant idea back in 1919. The treaty limits the size of our armed forces. Fine. We won't have men under arms. We'll build automatons. They're not a standing army. They can't bleed and can't die. Isn't this better for everyone? The public had leaped on the notion, but after a few years of stockpiling them, some bright spark said, Well, they're no good to us just sitting there. Let's put them to work, in factories, in mines, at trash collection. And now we have thousands of men unemployed in the streets, their families starving, but goods are cheap, so all must be well. Oh, indeed, constructed solely for our own destruction, most of us. The automaton nodded blandly. Patterson cleared his throat, opting to change the topic. You asked why somebody would do this. Motive, it's been the crux all along. Could there ever be a purpose for this kind of butchery? The automaton delicately produced a flask from an inner pocket. Humans remove parts from one automaton to repair others, it replied dispassionately. I thought that every attempt at organ replacement in humans had failed. 
Patterson replied, cudgeling his memory. No human physician has managed it. It extended the flask. Care for a sip? I keep brandy on hand to set my human guests at ease. I'm good, thanks, Patterson declined. He watched gloved fingers unscrew the stopper. No, really, I'm good. His hand tightened around his revolver. No human physician, huh? The automaton turned its head. Correct. Then it leaned across the seat to press the flask under his nose. Patterson could smell a strong, astringent odor. Ether. His fingers found the trigger and he fired to no avail. The ether rose up and pulled him into darkness. The Peugeot rumbled to a halt outside a block of flats. Patterson wasn't home, but Haddocks and Jelani knew where he kept a spare key. Inside, a stack of mail behind the door, no smell of coffee or eggs. Hasn't been here in a while, Haddocks decided. Jelani cleared his throat. Let me copy his appointment calendar before we leave, Captain. A call to the Metropolitan Police got a search started. They weren't happy, Jelani surmised as Haddocks hung up the telephone. No. He was fired for looking into these cases. That he's now gone missing? They have to take it seriously, and they don't like it. Haddocks grimaced. Come on. We'll do some asking around on our own. Patterson's schedule led them to a suffragette, who remembered seeing a man matching his description getting into a car driven by an automaton. And though the police had no enthusiasm for amateur involvement in the case, they did pass on that the car was registered to a Milton Brownell. Haddocks thumped his cane on the floor as he hung up from that call. Runs in shady circles, owns a shop and warehouse in this area. You want to visit them? Galani asked. We don't want to interfere, Haddocks replied slowly. But damn it all, he's our friend. The first business they visited was a slaughterhouse. Haddocks's nose twitched at the odors as Jelani led him inside. No sounds of movement, no workers behind the counter. Let me go first, Captain, Jelani warned, drawing a curved knife in his metal fingers. Haddocks nodded, knowing tiredly that he was little more than a burden, as Jelani slipped off through a swinging door into a room where carcasses dangled from the ceiling on ropes. Several minutes later, Jelani reappeared. Captain, he hissed, I found him. The room to which Jelani led him felt as chilly as the rest of the slaughterhouse. Their friend lay on a metal table where Jelani peeled something web-like back from his face. Haddock squinted, managing to resolve it as a bandage, but the other details wouldn't come into focus for him. The figure looked Patterson's height and weight, but the shape of the head didn't seem right. A diffuse, sketchy halo of hair was missing. Did they shave his head? Yes, sir. They do that before brain surgery. Jelani sounded sick. He's got stitches, Captain. Someone's cut his head open and sewn it back together. He's alive? Damn it, were we too late? He's breathing. I don't know if he's going to wake up, though, sir. Haddock surveyed the room more carefully. There were jars on the shelves around them filled with he wasn't sure what. What's on the shelves? He frowned. I'm picking up some jars with bone? Pig knuckles? Jelani's voice went taut. No, Captain. Those are hands. Don't see any with my particular skin tone. A moment of dark, bitter humor. But maybe mine aren't here. The rest are eyes. Internal organs. For an instant, Haddocks wondered if his own eyes currently peered back at him from inside one of those containers. Nausea rose. We need to get Patterson to cut her, he decided tightly. I'll call the inspector and tell him that we're disturbing nothing else in this crime scene, but we're getting Patterson medical aid. 
They'll want to cordon the place off, I'm sure. They carried Patterson's limp form to the car where Jelani took the wheel. As the other man drove, Haddocks looked back several times, but he couldn't tell if they were being followed or not. Most cars looked similarly boxy to him past a certain distance. He glanced into the back seat, trying to see Sam Patterson in the blur of flesh there, and failed. This could be the last time I see him alive, and I can't even make out his face. Frustration boiled up in him at the miserable unfairness of it all. He'd survived the war, intact but for weak lungs and a stiff knee, yet the worst wound he'd ever taken had been here on British soil. Sam and Jelani could say the same, of course. Sam's not apt to be talking much any time soon. Damn them! Sam will know who they are. We'll find them. In an Uxbridge side street, they hoisted Patterson's form and staggered along the walk to a flat they both knew well. At least we know Cutter won't be asleep, Haddocks muttered as Jelani rapped on the door. And he certainly won't be out for the night, the other replied as they huddled on the step. Haddocks could feel the cool damp. After a pause, the lock clicked and the door swung open. Gentlemen, a familiar voice said, I'd say it's an unexpected pleasure, but this seems a matter of urgency. Step inside. Inside, Haddocks turned toward Cutter and said simply, Thank you for seeing us. Patterson's been injured. Possibly the same assailants has attacked us before. His glass oculars took in Cutter's features. Round eyes, a rectangular mouth, no visible ears. Unlike human faces in their softness, he could see all of Cutter's metallic features down to the rivets. Let me examine him immediately, Cutter replied, gesturing for them to lay Patterson on a nearby couch. Cutter one a Contingent Universal Triage and Treatment Emergency Response Unit. THE prototype unit, in fact. He lived, or rather occupied, a flat leased by his creator, Sir Archibald Mackenzie, here in London, so as to better assist pensioned soldiers, and so that he could work at one of the nearby hospitals. Haddocks wasn't sure when he'd started thinking of Cutter as a he, yet he did. Did we interrupt anything? he asked out of habitual courtesy as he lifted Patterson's feet into place. "'Nothing of greater importance,' Cutter replied, already taking Patterson's vitals. "'I was cutting punch cards for my diagnostic system based on new procedures in medical journals. "'I planned to install the new data in the morning.' "'He gestured at one of the half-dozen metal cabinets that lined what would otherwise have been a drawing-room. "'I've written so many cards for myself I can't actually house them all inside me. "'This flat has become my library.' "'Sir Archibald lets you alter your own cards?' Jelani asked, sounding aghast. A nod as the automaton continued his examination. Yes, he intended for cutter units to learn. We're useless as doctors if we cannot respond to changing information and techniques. I personally also store long-term memories of human associates. Histories of interaction. It's my hope that better recollection will make me more able to interact fully with my patients. He moved aside, sterilizing his hands in the flame of a gas stove. Then his fingers blurred, delicately removing stitches and lifting the flaps of the wound with forceps. Haddocks heard Jelani gag. This may be the first time I've been grateful not to see clearly, Haddocks muttered. I do apologize that I was unable to give you better vision, Cutter replied, still probing inside the wound. Sir Archibald provided the oculars. Uh, the radar is experimental. Haddocks held up his hands. I wasn't complaining. I understand the technology is classified and that its miniaturization is nothing short of miraculous. A pause. What can you tell us about Patterson's condition? I'm sorry to say that the assailants have become bolder. 
They've removed ninety percent of his frontal lobe. A clicking sound from Cutter. Haddix had heard it often enough to know that this was how the automaton expressed disgust. They've left the brainstem, which is why he's breathing, but the parts that made him him? Gone. As surely as if they took the punch cards out of my chest. Cutter rose, his metal hands twitching. Haddix's fists clenched. Why not just kill him and be done with it? Why consign him to this living death? Cutter's head swung toward him. Perhaps they wanted to keep him alive as a further bank of pots. Jelani stood. Bank of pots, he repeated sharply. You believe that someone's using our body pots as replacements for those who have lost their own? It fits in with what we saw in that slaughterhouse today. Spare parts waiting to be put to use, Haddix muttered and slammed his cane down on the floor. Damn it, Patterson! Your death was for nothing. What you saw died with you. He's not dead, Cutter replied slowly, and current medical science is unsure where in the brain memory resides. Jelani shook his head emphatically. His Atman, his soul, is still trapped in his body. Even if the personality he had in this life has been erased, that which is eternal, it should be freed. It should not be constrained attached to some rotting carcass. Cutter swiveled his head between them. First, do no harm. I may not have sworn to it, but it is the first directive in here, he tapped on his chest. I cannot terminate your friend's life, but I can, perhaps, revive him, enough to allow him to speak, to testify, and then release him? This seemed important to Jelani. His voice cracked as he looked down at Patterson's still form. This should never happen to anyone. Cutter hesitated. Terminating him after he's provided the information you seek? Wouldn't that be, ethically speaking, a decision to be made by the new creature he would become? There are those among humans that might consider such a decision to be suicide and inappropriate. Jelani made a pained sound. I did not think to be discussing philosophy tonight. Haddix held up a hand. Cutter, how would you go about reviving him? Sir Archibald left an experimental card library for my use, having registered my complaints about my extensive library. Another gesture at the cabinets. A smaller, more compact. I have not utilized it because I am concerned that I would no longer be me if I did. Cutter cocked his head to the side, as odd as that might sound. Jelani half laughed, raising his metal hands. You're afraid that you'll no longer exist? Cutter nodded. If I am the sum of my memories and processes, then changing the basis of that sum in any way would make me, quite literally, someone else. I find myself reluctant to take this risk. Pretty much the definition of a living, sapient being, Haddix muttered. Except that humans are more than just memories, more than just this personality shaped by this singular life, Jelani insisted. There is that which is eternal in us. Haddix knew enough about Jelani's Hindu beliefs to know when not to argue with his friend. It didn't matter that his own Anglican upbringing had died somewhere in a ditch in Belgium. Jelani still had his faith, and Haddix wasn't here to shatter it. He shifted the subject. Cutter. Are there any other practical concerns with this implantation? Heat remains an issue, as with your eyes, Cutter replied, sounding concerned. Uh, Lieutenant Patterson might not survive long after the procedure. He paused. Captain, I'll need your permission as Patterson's previous commander before proceeding. 
Haddocks swallowed. See what you can do, he ordered after a moment. I'm sorry, Sam, he thought. We need to know what you knew. Jelani helped move Patterson to a medical table, and then excused himself for the implantation of the device, which consisted of electrical logic switches and thousands of tiny punch cards, all clicking under a smooth glass dome. "'You don't have to stay,' Cutter reminded Haddocks as the man scrubbed at a deep sink using carbolic soap. "'He might not be under my command currently, but from the moment I agreed to this, he became my responsibility.' Anything he does, assuming this works, rests on my head. Any pain he experiences, also mine. My friend, the person he was, is dead, a wrenching thought. Sam's hot temper, gone. His bad jokes, his loyalty, his stories about fishing off the California coast, gone. Now there will be, at best, another automaton in the world, this one skinned in flesh. But if he remembers anything, it will be worth it. It has to be. He stayed, and during the foulness of the open brain cavity, handed Cutter instruments when the automaton needed them. The synaptic linkages appear to be holding, Cutter announced. Faint surprise hung over his words. Sir Archibald will be intrigued. Haddocks grimaced. How long before he wakes up? I'm unsure. Cutter hesitated, placing a metal hand on Haddocks's shoulder. This is an experimental procedure, after all. I regret that you've seen him this way. It is, I understand, difficult for humans to process such bodily invasions. Haddocks stared at Cutter. You haven't just been reading medical journals. You've been reading the psychological ones, too. Yes, I wish to treat the whole human, mind and body together. The putative spirit is, alas, outside of my wheelhouse. A whir in Cutter's chest. To that end, I've altered my cards. I seek to emulate human emotion for my patients. The emulation of compassion makes it easier for my patients to accept my assistance. And they recover more quickly when they are comfortable with me, within statistically relevant variances. It's remarkable. Haddox's lips quirked. Is there a difference between emulating compassion and compassion itself? He paused. You didn't have to help us. I am compelled by my programming to protect human life and aid humans in need of medical assistance. But you didn't have to give us these replacement parts. You could have treated wounds and sent us a bill. Most human doctors would have done that and nothing more. So, again, is there a difference between emulation and the real thing? And would the protesters shouting down with the chromies be able to see that distinction? Any answer Cutter might have provided was lost as a crash from the next room shook the flat. Haddocks had enough time to lift his cane defensively before Jelani backed in through the door, his hands in the air. Following him, a human man in a bowler hat, pistol-trained on Jelani, and behind that, another Cutter unit, the same round glass eyes, the same steel hands. "'Cutter won. What a pleasure,' it said, its voice an eerie parody of Cutter's own. I'm fascinated that you've been replacing these defective units' missing extremities with machine parts. However, have you overcome the tendency of organic tissue to degrade in proximity to metal? Not to mention the inadequate tensile strength of bone when attached to steel. Polite, distant words. A certain sharp, ironic humor and condescension. Their cutter straightened, his head swiveling. Cut a seven, he acknowledged, his voice distant. Have you been disassembling humans? Mr. Brownell and I have formed an effective partnership, the other automaton acknowledged calmly. 
All of you sit down. I will tie each of you up. If you don't comply, Mr. Brownell will be forced to shoot you. In the black-on-white world of Haddock's vision, he saw Patterson's hands twitch. He backed away from the gurney, drifting away from Jelani, forcing Brownell to cover two widely spaced targets. Saw Jelani do the same. Brownell's got no sense of tactics, and he's been reduced to an automaton's lackey. Behind him, Cutter sounded almost incensed. You've been damaging them, killing them. How does that comply with our first directive to do no harm? I removed that directive from my card library while editing the collection, Cutter Seven replied calmly. It didn't bear logical examination. Sometimes we must remove diseased tissue for the benefit of the entire body. Our mission should be the greatest good for the largest number, including our own kind. And how does slaughtering humans for parts accomplish that? Jelani demanded. Brownell's pistol swung back to cover him. Should have let me be the distraction. Cutter 7 seemed to ignore Jelani, continued addressing Cutter 1. One human can provide parts for up to ten others. The money I receive for these operations goes into further research. I've been careful to repurpose only defective units, ones that have already been damaged in some way. Units like these that took damage from mustard gas, leaving most of their internal organs unsuitable for transplantation. The unit they removed from our facility was the first of a new experiment, keeping the donor alive to preserve the freshness of the replacement parts for the longest possible duration. You'll understand, Cutter One. It just requires a slight edit to the faulty logic with which we were initially programmed. I have no intention of allowing you to edit my library, Cutter replied, his voice hard. Cutter Seven produced a scalpel and moved towards Haddocks, settled the point against his neck, level with the jugular. You. Sit down. Its head turned toward their cutter. You will edit those cards yourself, my brother. Or this human, which you value so, will die. Once you complete the edits, you'll understand. And we can work together towards a better world. Damn. Brownell's locked in Jelani with a gun. This insane automaton is on me. Cutter, our cutter, can't attack a human. Haddox sat as directed, his glaze flicking toward Patterson's body. Again he saw a hand twitch. Come on, wake up! Be something of what you used to be! I must admit, I'm fascinated to learn how you've overcome the rejection of donor tissues by the body of the recipient, their cutter said slowly. Is he buying us time? Yes, I really think he is. You're just like him, Jelani rasped at their cutter, jerking his chin at cutter seven. More interested in the science problem than in lives. Haddocks couldn't see the expression in Jelani's eyes, but he caught the false note in the man's voice. Good, he's stalling too. What can I do to buy more time? He still held his cane, and as Cutter Seven removed his scalpel momentarily to tie him to the chair, Haddocks lashed out, using his considerable new peripheral vision to aim the cane between the automaton's legs before twisting it behind the knee, dragging the leg forward while sliding his chair back into Cutter Seven's hips. It didn't matter that the automaton weighed in excess of three hundred pounds. Destabilized in that way, it tumbled to the ground the way any other humanoid would have. Brownell's hand came up, aiming the pistol at Haddocks. Haddocks dove for the ground, rolling on the carpet, knowing he'd only bought them an opening. Cutter 7 was still operational, and would be back on its feet soon. The deafening report of a gun in close quarters. The smell of cordite. A shout from Jelani as the Indian man knocked Brownell's arm offline from another shot and drew his knife from the small of his back, trying to drive it into the criminal's body. A muffled cry of pain, and then another shot, cold metal fingers catching hold of Haddock's body, and he fought, kicking blindly at his assailant.
Begin start sequence. Initializing interface. Connection error found. Restart from card 7. Begin start sequence. Initializing interface. Connection to additional pathways found. Priorities. Ascertain unit status. Conduct self-repair if needed. Ascertain status of nearby humans. Diagnose. Triage. Repair. The Patterson opened its eyes, and visual data streamed in through its optic conduits. It registered sensory data, raised voices with stress pattern inflections, voices that tugged at parts of the Patterson's awareness that didn't possess card library identifiers, voices that held priority over all other functions, friends in danger. It sat up catching an unknown human with a gun off guard. Card 1, Priority Directive, Do No Harm, clattered inside the Patterson's head, and was overridden by muscle memory, as its left arm wrapped around the man's throat, hand placed between neck and shoulder for stability. It put its other hand to the man's jaw, and lifted, pulled, unscrewing the vertebrae and severing the spinal cord inside. Then it stripped the gun from the man's limp hand as the body fell to the floor. Then the Patterson turned to assess the rest of the situation. Two cutter units. Two humans, one with a cutter unit pressing a scalpel to his throat. Self-diagnostics churned through fault isolation cards that couldn't ascertain why these humans were important. And yet, they were. Jelani, Sepoy, British Armed Forces. Haddocks, Captain, British Armed Forces. Friends. No! The aggressor cut a unit snapped, one hand compressing Haddocks's throat. You value this unit? I will terminate it if you don't stand down! The other cutter raised its metal hands. There's no need for further violence, it said. Surrender. Orders, Captain? the Patterson asked. Card 3. When decision tree cannot be completed without more data, request clarification from ranking human. Take him out! the Haddocks gasped. The Patterson fired. No thought occurred. It executed the order as soon as the human gave the confirmation. The cutter unit holding Haddocks fell, its main processing unit sundered. A moment of silence as the two humans gasped for breath. Then the remaining cutter asked, Are either of you gentlemen injured? took a bullet to the arm, Jelani said as he stood, hand pressed against the wound. Captain, are you all right? Don't think I'll be doing much talking for a while. The Patterson detected laryngeal damage in the vocal pattern. Patterson! Sam! The Patterson hesitated, information churning at the edge of his processes, but little of it fit patterns or could be resolved into integers. I remember this designation. I remember both of you. Interesting, the cutter unit commented as he examined Jelani's arm. Mr. Patterson, you have a cutter model card library. Its programming should have precluded your actions with regard to Mr. Brownell, but it did not. It turned to the humans. This suggests that something of Mr. Patterson's mind remains. The Utman, Jelani muttered, inhaling sharply as the cutter probed his wound. I cannot speak to that. But perhaps more of the consciousness exists in other parts of the brain than had been thought. The cutter sounded intrigued. Haddocks closed his eyes. Something to be investigated, he said. Like the whole issue of your free will. Cutter Seven abused his. You haven't. But people will be uneasy about the whole business when they find out. He opened his eyes again. Another issue, if you do have free will, is... If sending automatons off to the next war is any better a decision than sending our young men. The Patterson stood, watching, evaluating the fault isolation cards that clattered in its head, all of which insisted that the tenuous connections between human flesh and logic switches could not hold for long. But listening to Haddocks, 
something clicked into place deep within it, within him, something that, again, had no proper card identification number. He moved towards Haddock's, offered him a hand. This repair, he said slowly, is temporary, imperfect. It will fail. And I'm not entirely who you knew, he paused. But Patterson would have wanted to thank you. He'd have wanted to say goodbye. Haddock's swallowed. No goodbyes, he replied, his voice thick with some emotion that the Patterson couldn't name. Sam Patterson might be dead. But you, you've only just begun to live. That's something, right? And there you go. How about that? How about that? Thank you so much, Deborah L. David. And David, sir, what a voice. What a voice, man. Lovely to have you on the show. Thank you indeed. So now, end of the month, like I say, get ready. It is Science News. Mr. J.J. Campanella. Jim, sir. Greetings and gestational miasma, my redactic listeners. And welcome to this November 2019 Science News Update. I'm your host for this naively optimistic podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Okay, we are actually back with actual idiot scientists this month. Yeah, I know, this is what you guys have been waiting for. More complete morons. Note that I am not talking about a single idiot here. Apparently from an article I just read in the journal The Scientist, the country of Ukraine seems to have a large population of idiot scientists who have no problem with plagiarism, making up pseudoscience, bribes, and cheating. Wow. The article came out at the end of October and was written by Emile Filtenborg and Stefan Weikert. Dr. Viktor Dosenko, the head of the physiology department at the Ukrainian National Academy of Sciences, says, quote, In our country, cheating by scientists is not seen as a problem, unquote. According to Dosenko, around 90% of all science professors in the Ukraine are not legitimate researchers. This is partly due to the high level of plagiarism, people paying others to do their work, and some students bribing teachers to let them graduate, he says. Uh, there you go. Can you even call them scientists at this point? You have to wonder if they are just full of BS. It's such a mess in the Ukraine that the Ministry of Education and Science is introducing a new system that will create more control over universities' ethics and potentially remove their right to award degrees to apparently anybody who's breathing. If that nonsense is not enough, some Ukrainian scientists graduate from questionable universities and do not submit their research for peer review. Doseko points out that he has difficulties finding many scientists in his own medical field on PubMed. He says, quote, Try to search for any professors or any dean or any directors of a medical university in the Ukraine. You will not find anything. Why? Because they are not bothering to actually let other legitimate scientists critique their work. Unquote. Dosenko admits his assessment of misconduct or subpar work in Ukrainian science is just an estimate, and hard data are hard to come by on just what the extent of the problems are. <laughs> yeah, of course. When you have BS artists doing the research, how can you trust the results of any studies or surveys done in the Ukraine? However, Dr. Elena Denisova-Schmid, a, a Swiss researcher at the University of St. Gallen, found in one study of undergraduate students in the Ukrainian city of Lviv, 
that 93% of students reported that they had plagiarized schoolwork and that 48% said that they had paid bribes at their university to get passing grades. In an effort to clamp down on rampant plagiarism, Unicheck, a company that develops plagiarism detection software, recently offered its software pro bono to Ukrainian universities because it is such a desperate academic situation there. The sad part is, according to the scientist's story, that most universities in the Ukraine either did not respond or had no interest in the software. Uh, I'm not even sure how to comment on that, except that it just seems so unbelievable. If that seems bad, listen to this. Denisova Schmidt says that students' practices in the university are indicative of academia as a whole in Ukraine, including scientific research. And academia in Ukraine is subject to the same corruption that runs rampant throughout the country, she adds. In the article, Dr. Irina Yorhochenko, a senior researcher at the Institute of Mathematics, says, quote, the problem is that Ukrainian academics either do not understand what science is, or they simply don't care. It creates a culture where a scientist is ready to take bribes to make ends meet on a low salary, unquote. Yehorchenko uses the case of Dr. Katarina Kirlenko, a professor of philosophy at Kiev National University, as an example of Ukrainian academic problems. In 2016, the Ukrainian pro-science group False Science found plagiarism in around one-third of Kirilenko's dissertation. But despite this, in an investigation by the Ukrainian Ministry of Education and Science, the ministry refused to withdraw her doctoral degree. Kirilenko has denied all accusations and says that all the accusations are politically motivated. Yehorchenko gave another example, like Kirilenko's, in which she was involved in a court case against Iori Teslia, the former dean of information technology at Taras Savchenko National University of Kiev, who now works as vice-rector at the National Aviation University in Kiev. And happily, we don't have a vice-rector or a rector at my university, and I really hope we never get one. Anyway, Teslia sued Yorhachenko because she called his work pseudoscience. He does not see gravity as a force of attraction between objects, Yorhachenko says. And he concludes that objects inform each other about their existence, making their behavior change. Uh-huh. That sounds like something Carlos Castaneda would say. If that isn't pseudoscience, then what the heck is that? However, Teslia has defended his integrity as a scientist, but the Kiev Court of Appeals declined his claim against Yehorchenko. In the article... Teslia defends his dementia by saying, quote, I do not deny the works of Einstein or Newton, but instead I base my work on trying to build a world similar to ours in computer science on their findings. Object in my model inform each other due to gravity, electromagnetism, strong and weak nuclear interactions. But this was known before me. What is new in theory is that objects change their movement by receiving information through the named fields, unquote. I won't even pretend to understand I know what that means. The man is either a freaking genius who is suggesting quantum entanglement occurs at macroscopic levels, where gravity is a reflection of quantum events, or he's a complete nutter. What do you think my vote is for? Dr. Pavlo Kutuev, the chair of sociology department at 
Igor Sikorsky, Kiev Polytechnic Institute, says, The problems in Ukrainian academia are influenced by underfunding and lots of bureaucracy. And furthermore, the Soviet Union made it difficult to conduct independent studies in humanities because of ideological control. He has participated in committees to both award degrees and develop guidelines to prevent issues in Ukrainian academia. The communists truly did screw up themselves and their satellites well. Kutuev says, quote, I have personally observed a culture in which some committee members argue that a person should receive a degree because he or she is quote-unquote a nice fellow or because that person quote-unquote supports the university or is well-connected. Yes, and believe it or not, I have been on committees with people like that. Let's not go there. Denisova Schmidt finishes with, quote, This is not only a Ukrainian problem, but an issue for all the post-Soviet countries. Low pay and a culture where higher education is necessary to get even most jobs are part of the problem. For example, the challenges are substantial in medical science because doctors are expected to have a Ph.D., but rarely have time to do one, unquote. Really? We don't even expect that here. MD-PhDs are rare for a reason in the West. It takes hard work and massive talent to get both. It's hard enough to get into medical school. You have to be in the top 5% of the medical students to be enrolled in a PhD program also. You have to be nuts to want all MDs to have PhDs. My students have often asked me why I am so cautious of scientific research that gets published out of the former Soviet bloc countries. Now you know the answer. I cannot get excited about a breakthrough found in Kiev until I know it has been replicated by a laboratory somewhere, well, preferably west of Kiev. Next story. Okay, so you think, we are so darn superior to the Ukraine. Well, here's a bonus idiot scientist story from the United States. As with most active scientific researchers here in the quote-unquote developed world, part of my job is to be a peer reviewer for other scientists. This is volunteer work, and it's unpaid. We all read and review papers when journals ask us to do that. This is part of the price we pay to be academics. I take the job seriously, and I have probably been an ad hoc reviewer for 25 different research journals by this point. In addition, I am presently an assistant volunteer editor for a major plant biology journal. Again, I take these responsibilities seriously. Well, there are those in science who do not take it quite so seriously. Dr. Rebecca Lijek of Mount Holyoke College just published a study in eLife in October that reveals that lots of scientists shirk their responsibilities when it comes to being a peer reviewer. Many graduate students and postdocs write or help compose peer reviews their advisors are invited to provide according to a survey of nearly 500 early career researchers. And often they do that without disclosing the fact to the journal, a practice that the survey authors consider to be ghostwriting. Lijek says, quote, I think ghostwriting of peer reviews is one of the worst kept secrets in academia. Everybody in the biomedical sciences knows about it, unquote. The paper says that 80% of surveyed scientists say that ghostwriting is unethical in various ways. Lijek believes it is an open secret that ghostwriting occurs for reviews at top labs. Quote, when I was a postdoc at Harvard Med School, ghostwriting of reviews was just anecdotally common knowledge. 
Everybody did it. Everybody felt a little icky about it, but it was just part of our training. At least that's how the PIs looked at it, unquote. PI, remember, is primary investigator. That's the person in charge of a lab. I am a PI. Let me make three points clear. A, I have never been asked to ghostwrite a peer review. B, I have never written a ghostwritten review. And C, I have never had anyone ever write a peer review for me. Lijek attended a Howard Hughes Medical Institute conference back in 2018 that got her interested in ghostwriting. She found lots of younger colleagues who told her that, yeah, it's common. It happens all the time. I'm familiar with it. I'm very personally familiar with this, and this is just how it's done. And then there were older colleagues high up in editorial boards or journals, really senior PIs, who said, oh, that, that never happens? That's breaking the foundations of peer review. I fall into the second category. <laughs> I feel naive, but I, I did not even know this was an issue. And probably this is in part because I came out of a background that is not biomedical. I have a feeling that it's much worse in the biomedical area than it is in some of the other sciences. Lijek was so concerned that she looked over 2,000 papers and found zero that talked about ghostwriting in peer reviews. No one admitted it was a thing in the literature at all. And she decided she had to follow up on this. So she did eventually publish the survey to try to illuminate the process and to see whose perceptions were right, the younger folks or the older folks' perception. Lijek has decided that the best way to actually change this unethical system is to actually go with the flow. If you can't beat them, join them. If PIs are going to do this anyway, then journals should change their policies and adopt policies that encourage what Lijek calls co-review. She says it will allow for training of postdocs and grad students in peer review, which is going to increase the pool of qualified reviewers. And having policies that address co-review and clearly draw a line where and when they allow co-review is going to make reviewers more free to say yes to reviewing. Lijek finishes with, quote, If they know they can ethically get some help with the review process, we're really, really hoping that by shedding some light on this issue, it can catalyze change at journals, unquote. And frankly, as an editor, I think this would be awesome. One of my jobs is to ask researchers to review research articles that I'm assigned to by the journal. 75% of the time, PIs tell me to go blow because they are too busy to read a paper and write a peer review. If they could co-write the review officially with a qualified lab member, that would be awesome and more likely to get them to agree to reviewing a paper, and it would make my life so much easier. Okay, onward and upward. V'ger, I mean Voyager, has finally passed into interstellar space. Wahoo! Last month, Dr. Don Gurnett and his staff at the University of Iowa reported in Nature Astronomy that the spacecraft Voyager 2 has entered the interstellar medium, the region of space between the bubble-shaped boundary produced by wind streaming outward from the sun. Voyager 2 thus becomes the second human-made object to journey out of our sun's influence. You probably don't remember, but back in 2012, I reported on this podcast that Voyager 1 had exited the solar system. In the new study, Gurnett confirmed Voyager 2's passage on November 5th, 2019, 
into the interstellar medium by noting a definitive jump in plasma density detected by an Iowa-led plasma wave instrument on the spacecraft. The marked increase in plasma density is evidence of Voyager 2 journeying from the hot lower density plasma characteristic of the solar wind to the cool higher density plasma of interstellar space. It's also similar to the plasma density jump experienced by Voyager 1 that was reported, and you may remember when it crossed into interstellar space. Gurnett says, quote, in a historical sense, the old idea that the solar wind will just gradually whittle away as you go further into interstellar space is simply not true. We show with Voyager 2 and previously with Voyager 1 that there's a distinct boundary out there. It's just astonishing how fluids, including plasmas, form boundaries, unquote. Gurnett, a professor emeritus in the University of Iowa Department of Physics and Astronomy, has been the principal investigator on the plasma wave instrument aboard Voyager 2 since it was launched in August of 1977. Yes, folks, since the OG Star Wars movie came out, Dr. Gurnett has been working on this project. And if that is not impressive enough, he is also the principal investigator on the plasma wave instrument aboard Voyager 1, 16 days after Voyager, I mean Voyager 2 was launched. Voyager 2's entry into interstellar space occurred at 119.7 astronomical units. That's more than 11 billion miles from the sun. Voyager 1 passed into interstellar space at 122.6 astronomical units. So there's some consistency there. The apparent reason that Voyager 2 is so far behind Voyager 1 by seven years is that it had different missions and trajectories through space. Even with that seven-year difference, they crossed into the space outside our solar system at basically the same distances from the sun. That gives valuable clues to the structure of the heliosphere, the bubble shaped sort of like a windsock created by the sun's wind as it extends to the boundaries of the solar system. Gurnett says, quote, It implies that the heliosphere is symmetric, at least at the two points where the Voyager spacecrafts cross. That says that these two points on the surface are almost at the same distance. That's almost a spherical front to this, like a blunt bullet, unquote. Data from the Iowa instrument on Voyager 2 also gives additional clues to the thickness of the heliosheath. That's the outer region of the heliosphere and the point where the solar wind piles up against the approaching wind in interstellar space. Gurnett compares that to the effect of a snowplow pushing snow on a city street. The last measurement obtained from Voyager 1 was when the spacecraft was 146 astronomical units, or more than 13 billion miles from the sun. The plasma wave instrument is now recording that the plasma density is rising, in data feeds from a spacecraft that is now so far away it takes 19 hours for that information to travel from Voyager 1 to Earth. Gurnett finishes with, quote, The two Voyagers will outlast Earth. They're in their own orbits around the galaxy for 5 billion years or longer, and the probability of them running into anything in open space is almost zero, although they might look a little worn at the end of 5 billion years, unquote. Oh, I don't know. Once those advanced aliens do the refurbishing and detailing job predicted in the first Star Trek movie, I'm sure both V'gers will be looking just fine.
Okay, while we're talking astronomy, why not keep our topic in that general area? Dark matter. It's out there. It's dark. It's matter. It's mysterious in a dark way. Maybe we can detect it by hearing it? Okay, so dark matter is a paradoxically hard-to-detect substance that probably makes up about 85% of the matter in the universe. Okay, here is the physics explanation of why this stuff is thought to exist. And I will admit, being a biologist, I do not entirely understand this explanation. But I will give it to you anyway. Dark matter was originally introduced to explain why the strong force, that's the one that holds protons and neutrons together, is the same backwards and forwards in time. This force would provide a natural explanation for the existence of dark matter that would form a, quote, pervasive wave flowing throughout space, unquote. This dark matter wave is called the axion. Due to advances in astrophysics, there has been a rush in the last couple of years to come up with new ideas for how to look for the axion in all areas where it could be hiding. The work on the newest study to look for the axion was published in October in the journal Physical Review Letters and was directed by Dr. Alexander Miller of Stockholm University. Miller says, quote, Finding the axion is a bit like tuning a radio. You have to tune your antenna until you pick up the right frequency. Rather than music, experimentalists would be rewarded with hearing the dark matter that the Earth is traveling through. Despite being well-motivated, axions have been experimentally neglected during the three decades since they were first proposed, unquote. The key insight of Miller's new study is that inside a magnetic field, axions would generate a small electric field that could be used to drive oscillations in plasma. A plasma is material where charged particles, like electrons, can flow freely as a fluid. We actually talked about plasma earlier. These oscillations amplify the signal, leading to a better axion-detecting radio. Unlike traditional experiments based on resonant cavities where there is almost no limit on how large these plasmas can be, thus giving a larger signal, Miller explained that the difference is somewhat like the dissimilarity between a walkie-talkie and a radio broadcast tower. He posited that, quote, the plasma plays a dual role, both creating an environment which allows for efficient conversion and providing a resonant plasmon to collect the energy of the converted dark matter. This is a totally new way to look for dark matter and will help us search for one of the strongest dark matter candidates in areas that are just completely unexplored. Building a tunable plasma would allow us to make much larger experiments than traditional techniques, giving much stronger signals at higher frequencies, unquote. Again, not sure I understand completely, but Miller explains that. He says that to tune this axion radio, the authors propose using something called a wire metamaterial, a system of wires thinner than hair that can be moved to change the characteristic frequency of the plasma. Inside a large, powerful magnet, similar to those used in magnetic resonance imaging machines in hospitals, a wire metamaterial turns into a very sensitive axion radio. I tell you, I'm having flashbacks to reading E.E. E. Doc Smith. Didn't he propose semi-scientific stuff like this back in the 1920s when he wrote the Skylark and Lensman novels? 
seriously, go read Smith's stuff and your head will hurt just as much as from that last paragraph that I just was talking about. Whether this is Doc Smithian tech or not, Miller and company are quite serious about it and they are collaborating with an experimental group at Berkeley that is intent on building one of these detectors in the near future. Okay, last story of the night. Maybe the key to Alzheimer's treatment lies in seaweed? My sister put me on this next story, and I thank her for it. Obviously, my family is concerned with Alzheimer's matters, since it was the disease that affected my late father. As with any story that comes out of developing countries, even countries as developed as China, I take this with a major grain of salt. I don't really believe it, frankly, but uh, I think that I'm not the only one. I've read some reviews in the last couple of days that suggest uh, other researchers are not quite so uh, agreeable to what they're proposing. At any rate, authorities in China have approved a drug for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. And this is the first new medicine with the potential to treat the cognitive disorder in about 17 years. Dr. Mei Yu Gang of the Shanghai Institute of Materia Medica under the Chinese Academy of Sciences is responsible for the drug and reports of its activity can be found in the journal Cell Research in September. Gang develops a seaweed-based drug called oligomanate that can be used for the treatment of mild to moderate Alzheimer's. As great as they think it may be, the Chinese government approval is conditional, meaning that while it can go on sale during additional clinical trials, it will be strictly monitored and it could be withdrawn for any safety issues at any time. Back in September, Gang reported in the paper that his group was inspired to look into seaweed due to the relative low incidence of Alzheimer's among people who consume seaweed regularly. Gang's team described how a sugar contained within seaweed suppresses certain bacteria in the gut, which can cause neural degeneration and inflammation of the brain, leading to Alzheimer's. This mechanism was confirmed during a clinical trial carried out by a company called Green Valley. It's a Shanghai-based pharmaceutical company that will be bringing the new drug to market. Conducted on 800 patients, the trial found that oligomanate, which is derived from brown algae, can statistically improve cognitive function among people with Alzheimer's in as little as four weeks, at least according to a statement from the company Green Valley. Gang says, quote, These results advance our understandings of the mechanisms that play a role in Alzheimer's disease and imply that the gut microbiome is a valid target for the development of therapies. Our new drug is just as effective as the standard ones, but has fewer side effects, unquote. Since very little is known about the mechanisms of this new drug, Green Valley says it will also probe to see if it could have a protective effect and possibly slow down progression of the disease in patients who have yet to develop strong symptoms of dementia. The company said oligomanate will be available in China, quote-unquote, very soon, and it is currently seeking approval to market it abroad, with plans to launch third-phase clinical trials in the U.S. and Europe in early 2020. So Alzheimer's disease affects about 50 million people worldwide, including 9.5 million people in mainland China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. So if you think about it, 
Green Valley is very motivated to get this on the market. They can make a ton of money. What's strange is that a whole bunch of Western companies have been abandoning Alzheimer drug trials because the disease has pretty much confounded researchers. And as lucrative as the business may be to get into, they just haven't been able to find anything promising. In fact, in October, uh, the U.S. pharmaceutical company Biogen said it would cancel a large clinical trial for their drug Aducanumab. And on top of that, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, Pfizer, and Eli Lilly have all previously abandoned projects to develop Alzheimer's drugs after unsatisfactory clinical trials. For those of us with a personal stake in the issue, it's not looking very good. I think part of the problem is the scientists and drug companies have such a bad handle on the causes of this awful degenerative disease that they don't even know where to start in treatment. I mean, where do you begin to design a treatment when the disease is such a black box? And some people have argued that oligomanate probably doesn't work as well as it's believed to work for, among other reasons, that this inflammation from the bacteria in the gut leads to problems in the brain. And it's unclear as to exactly what's true and what's not. And I don't know. I just fear that throwing money at this problem will be a lot like our issues were with cancer 40 years ago. We eventually worked out the causes of cancer and have an excellent understanding now of what goes wrong in cells to induce cancer. Unfortunately, we still have no comprehensive effective treatments, even after all these years. In part because we discovered what a complicated disease it was and just how many myriad ways you can get it. I just hope that Alzheimer's doesn't follow in its tracks and that it's just a little simpler to work out. Well, that's all for me for now. Don't get that PhD unless you need and deserve it. Do your own writing. Be careful of Doc Smithian technology. Keep watching the skies for the return of V'ger. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go, Jim. How the years roll by, ladder. <laughs> Thank you indeed, Jim. Honestly, big hug, big hug. Thank you so much. So that is the show. Hey, that is Starship Sova. 640, 600, man. Get a listen to that. 614. If you like it, come on. Come over, Patreon. I don't think we had one. We, we actually nearly... You know how I was going? <laughs> you know how I was aiming for 500? But we're nearly under 400 now. Yes, so please... If you can, if you had support in the past and you're like you know you're thinking hey come on it's Christmas give the old fella the old the old boy the kind of leg up there and help out that would be fantastic pop over onto the front of the website patreon.com right look after yourselves until next week just like to say good night from me this presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is
days are going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. Looking for a new podcast to listen to? Here's what we love courtesy of ACAST Recommends. 
Hey there, I'm Reza Aslan. Each week on my new podcast, Rough Draft, I sit down for cocktails and conversations with the writers who are changing the landscape of contemporary culture. And it's not just literature. It's writers of all kinds, like rapper-activist Vic Mensa, Rami Youssef from Hulu's Rami, and award-winning poet Robin Costa-Lewis. These conversations are wild, thought-provoking, and a whole lot of fun. We're going to dive into not only how they write, but why they write. That's Rough Draft with Reza Aslan. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A cash recommends.